more recently, it's kind of like I've thought of it as giving thoughts a place to go and rest. Hello, print friends, and welcome to the 84th episode of Pine Copper Lime, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please do subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and you can find all this and more at pinecopperline.com. We also have a Patreon, where lovely, generous, and intelligent print fans sign up at tiers that start at just a dollar a month to help support the show and keep us bringing you printmaking content every week. We also have a new feature in our Pine Copper Lime community, Shop Talk with our editor, Timothy Pauschak. These are brief, short, all-business, quick and dirty tips and tricks with our guests. Where do you get your inspiration? What's the best way to solve your mistakes? What's the best way to learn from them? What's the best thing to text your crush? This is technical, printmaking nerd content at its finest, and it will be available to every tier of PCL Patreon supporters. Check it out through the link in the show notes. And if you love printmaking and you want to sing it to the world, we also have merch with all kinds of fun designs to show your PCL love and support and make print jokes which confuse and intrigue your friends, family, and strangers at the grocery store. Check out the link in the show notes and send us a picture of you and your PCL swag out in the world. We'd love to see it. Printmaking forever. Shun the non-believers. Pine Copper Lime is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative practice since 1997. Products like Armheim 1619, a high-quality, low-cost paper made in collaboration with a historic paper mill near the city of Arnheim. Our editor, Timothy Pauschak, swears by it for printing lithographs, and our friend of the pod and guest of episode number four, Miles Calvert, regularly evangelizes its use while encouraging his students to participate in Speedball's new impressions content while they produce work in every print medium. So, if you're looking for an affordable paper that can support whatever inky ideas you're throwing at it, then head on over to speedballart.com and find out where you can pick up the start to your next edition. This episode of Pine Copper Lime is also brought to you by our friends over at McLean's Printmaking Supplies. Our editor, Timothy Pauschak, is loving his Futatsu Warihangito 30mm carving knife. Most of us know how to go at a block with a chisel, but if you've ever seen a Yukioi block with your own eyes, you know those little lines are going to come from using a variety of tools. Maybe most importantly, a knife. And luckily for our editor, McLean's has resources to show you exactly how to hold your new tools to keep your hands and joints safe and comfortable for years of happy carving. So head on over to imaclean's.com to find your new favorite tool and learn something new today. My guest this week is Jessica Robles, professor of printmaking and drawing at the College of the Sequoias and California State University, Fresno. We'll talk about her use of text and image, how she goes about making it in the art world with all its self-promotion as very much an introvert, how recording seemingly insignificant moments changes them through art, 
and just what is a self-portrait anyway? So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to appreciate the little things with Jessica Robles. Hi, Jessica. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you for joining me. Yeah. I know your work from around the internet. I think we have some mutual friends as well. And, you know, one of the things that really stands out for me is you're just an incredible drafts person. Like, that is very clear from your work. And I think that it really makes your work kind of pop when you're scrolling through the vast fields of Instagram. And also you have really interesting subject matter and ways of storytelling. And I'm really keen to get in on all of that and find out a little bit more about you and your practice. But before I do that, and before we do that, would you please let people know who you are and where you are and what you do? Um, First, thank you for kind words. Yeah. Um, my name my name is Jessica Robles. Uh, I was born and raised in Visalia, California, right smack dab in the middle of the, the state. I started out at community college and then transferred to the Kansas City Art Institute to receive my BFA in printmaking. And then I went on to Northern Illinois University to receive my BFA degree. Um, also in printmaking. Um, after grad school, I moved back home to California. I got hired at College of the Sequoias, which is the same community college I attended, to teach drawing and other foundation courses, and then eventually was hired at Fresno State to teach printmaking. So I've been adjuncting for about almost eight years now. Wonderful. Yeah, I am such a huge believer in community college. I did community yeah. college myself, and I think that the education that I got there was as good, if not better, than what I received at four-year universities. Uh, it's, oh, totally, yeah. It's and, and I think part of what people you know maybe don't think about, or at least is something that I thought about a lot when I was there, was that the people who are teaching me have the same qualifications as the people from that I'd be being taught by at four-year universities. You know, I'm learning from PhDs and MFAs, mm-hmm. and I have 20 other kids in this class, not 400. And mm-hmm. so you're, you're getting people with a lot of the times the same qualifications, and yet you're really getting their time and their attention and their support in a way that you know, you just get to interact with like a stressed out TA for your colleges at the big <laughs> universities. Um, and it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was there. I was there for uh, longer than I was supposed to be, but Same. it was definitely worth it. Yeah. Why did you choose community college? Um, it was just what I, what I knew. It was in mm. our community and my mom had attended community college and it was just, it felt like that's what I was supposed to do before college. You're supposed to go here. Oh, very nice. Um, I, yeah, I think it was a good choice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, my mother was a librarian at a community college, not the one that I went to, a different one. But I think that might have been part of it as well, is that it just grew up with it as a strong option. And I think not necessarily everyone does, particularly if they're from maybe somewhere that's 
so rural it doesn't even have that as an option. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. At what point in your educational journey did you connect with printmaking? Um, I was led to printmaking in community college, actually. Uh, Richard Peterson, who used to be the head of the 2D department at College of the Sequoias, I had taken a class, uh, drawing classes and painting classes with him, and he told me to sign up for a printmaking class. I had never really heard of printmaking. Um, Mm. So I finally signed up for a class. The first semester, I sat there in (laughs) awe, um, kind of really intimidated, but it was also absorbing it all. Uh, He gave me, he calls it still to this day a gift of a C grade because I didn't do anything. (laughs) But um, he could tell that, you know, there's something, I had an interest. But I was just taking in everything, like the process, the smell, the overall feeling of camaraderie. I was was basically in love. (laughs) And I felt like I had found my people. And I've I've loved it ever since. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting, though, that you describe it as intimidating, but still (laughs) in love with it. Can you speak to that a little bit more? It was, well, I think the press is always kind of like the big, like, holy crap, kind of when you're first (laughs) into a, a, you know, a shop or anything. But I don't know. It was chemical and, Mm. you know, things I can't explain. Uh, I don't know why, you know, I mean, lithography (laughs) itself is kind of like still mind boggling to me. But it was just like this whole other world to me and it was I was originally going to be a a graphic designer Mm -hmm. and so I was in front of this computer a lot and taking computer classes and then this was the complete opposite like hands-on you're the actual machine creating these images and cranking them out and it was just amazing to me yeah well I could definitely see that switch between that digital world of graphic design to Mm -hmm. this beautiful analog world where you know what's happening is you're you're physically creating physical objects you know I could I could see that you know it's just sort of like a (laughs) big shift a big change yeah yeah and so you said that you felt like you were in love with it you felt like you were connected to it you liked the community for sure And then what made you decide to sort of pursue it in higher education beyond that? I honestly think it was Richard Peterson's Mm. home. We call him Pete. Mm. He'll kill me if I call him Richard. (laughs) Um, But he he had so much passion. And I think it just, you know, we, all of us who are his students absorbed all that and carried it on. Um, So it was, I think he was a huge, huge part of it. Yeah, definitely. I think... Uh, connecting with that one mentor can really make a difference in our lives for sure. So I'd like to talk about your imagery specifically. Um, And one of the things that's really interesting in your practice is your use of text and images. And you'll kind of, you'll pair an image with a set of text. And of course it informs the image, it changes the way the viewer sees the image. Can you talk a little bit about that particular process? So 
Do you have that idea from the beginning? Do you see an image and decide to add the text? Do you come up with your words first? What's your creative practice around that? So I'm an extremely introverted person. Mm -hmm. Um, I tend to be in my head a lot. I always have been. As a kid, I had, and I still think I do, uh, had a huge imagination. I'm constantly curious about things. Um, I like to figure out patterns and how things work and put myself in other people's shoes. Um, I'm just constantly observing. With that, I think, comes thoughts or observations that strike something for me. Usually, I'll, I'll write them down, a phrase or a word. So usually it's the the word that comes before the image. Sometimes it's a, a phrase or a sentence that just plays over and over in my head. Mm. Um, and then that's when the images actually start to build. Sometimes the images are just what I am seeing at that point in time when I am thinking of the, the phrase or, or sentence. Um, other times they're extremely thought out and are linked. I think it's just interesting that you you know, describe yourself as an introverted person and, and you're in the art world where, you know, there's a lot of sort of self-promotion, you know, be you know, put yourself mm-hmm. out there kind of energy that's often needed or at least really encouraged. How do you find that side of art making then as someone who identifies as an introvert? That is <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> um, it's hard. It's hard being a quiet person and someone who doesn't necessarily like attention put on themselves. Um, mm. I I do think that teaching has kind of helped me be less introverted and quiet. Um, it's forced me, you know, because I have to talk to a room full of people. Yeah. And so kind of gotten a little bit used to you know hearing my own voice out loud and actually you know promoting my stuff because you know and then in the end it's just kind of like I have put in my time Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm modest but I am you know humble (laughs) I deserve to be out there (laughs) definitely yeah no uh like I mentioned earlier I mean your your work is just beautiful and I realized I didn't even ask you what role art had in your life growing up were you someone who was always drawing were you born with just that that gift because your work is you know has that that kind of feeling of someone who just has really mastered image making and seems to have really this power to kind of draw anything she puts her mind to yeah um i've been drawing since you know i've been able to hold you know, a drawing or writing utensil. <laughs> my grandparents were retired school teachers mm. and they had um, a bunch of leftover art supplies from their classes. And so it was just kind of like heaven to me <laughs> whenever uh-huh. I spend time with them. Um, I had, you know, watercolors and pastels and crayons and everything. And I just felt gravitated towards them. I think I kind of took a a break. It wasn't really that, I wouldn't say interested into it, but um, not until like 
middle school or high school, I think. Ever since, yeah. <laughs> Been drawing ever since. Yeah. Were you particularly gifted as a kid at drawing? Or was this is this <laughs> um, is this draftswomanship something that was really hard fought for? I think both. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm I think I spent a lot of time, you know, honing my craft and but I don't know. I never thought of being like a, a gifted, <laughs> gifted child, but I don't know. It's like, tell me, Jessica, were you a gifted child? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then to kind of, you know, return to this idea, I think, of, of, of making art as an introvert. Art, I think, is for some people, and I think perhaps for you as well, you know, it can be sort of quite personal. I think a lot of the work that I've seen from you seems to be kind of about your life, your immediate surroundings, your pets, mm-hmm. you know, kind of close to home. And you had one piece that you you did where the words that you put on it, I just remember it because it's, it's just a, it's a, it's a sentence that I think really captures a lot of different things where you say, it's hard to ignore the cruel thoughts when you're the only one talking and it's just like yes that is true (laughs) yeah (laughs) and so do you find I guess any kind of push and pull between putting so much of yourself out there and you know some of those maybe inner kind of harder moments out there through the visual medium I've found that like being honest and vulnerable really goes a long way I think with, especially with some of my imagery is very little tiny quiet moments that mm-hmm. most wouldn't really consider to even look at or, or draw. But um, when you take kind of a personal part of you or, you know, thought or anything like that, I think it kind of elevates it a bit or makes it special, I guess, in a way. Yeah. You mean like when you take kind of like a, a quiet moment and, and transfer it from the world of reality onto the page, it mm-hmm. sort of elevates it a bit. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting how that happens, how, you know, a, a coffee carafe is just a coffee carafe until someone lovingly and exacting renders it you know in into yeah. another space mm-hmm. and then and then all of a sudden you know it, it becomes something that seems uh imbued with meaning which is yeah a, a fascinating part of the the art process for sure and i think mm-hmm. it's something that your work does a lot how it kind of interacts with the world you know you've, you've talked about this idea of trying to capture the self through non-traditional portraits would mm-hmm. you say that that that's kind of a bit what you're up to when you document these little moments throughout your day? Um, yeah, definitely. Because um, a lot of my work kind of stems back to childhood. Mm. I would always, when I was drawing nonstop at my grandparents' house, um, I would always document my day by, by writing and drawing about them. I made books and, you know, everything about just going to the grocery store, hanging out with my granddad all day. Mm. Um, it, it felt important that I recorded things so that I could share them and remember them. And I think, you know, that's another way where they become special yeah. uh, to me. But also, like, 
both of my parents worked a lot. So my sister and I spent a lot of time with our grandparents. Um, and so like they would take us, you know, on their everyday errands, you know, to the post office even. And because they were retired school teachers, they were, you know, always, it's always a opportunity to learn something yeah. or, or talk, have a conversation. So I think that always kind of were often like the, the highlight of my day. So I felt the need to, to record them so that I could all, not only, you know, show my parents that they missed out during the day. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's like, they're almost like sacred. But I think being introverted is an extremely shy as a kid. It was easier for me to communicate through images than, than it was to communicate with actually, you know, speaking or talking words. Mm. And I think that still holds true today. I think my my work now is kind of like a the still uh, almost a play on that. I choose to record these thoughts and images so that I can not only remember them, but it's also how I feel most comfortable expressing myself or, or communicating. I can physically feel a moment when it happens that I'll I'll want to take time to to record or process, and that can be something as tiny and insignificant as the way the shadow is falling across my kitchen sink or or as big as like a huge major traumatic experience Mm. I think even though my work tends to be extremely personal I also like to keep it open and and universal to the viewer I've never been a fan of artist statements that completely give away all the all the magic, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I try to keep my statements pretty vague so that the viewer has, has to use their own brain. <laughs> uh, I'm always interested in how the viewer feels or what they take away from my work. It's almost always the complete opposite of what I was thinking when I created it, which I think is really cool. Mm-hmm. I tend to assign a lot of objects, well, a lot of meaning or significance to, to them. Um, in regards to, you know, my life, they can represent a person, a place, a time, event, or all of that at the same time. The fact that people still manage to connect things to their, their own lives that are, you know, part of mine still kind of is amazing to me. Um, when I hear other people's responses, it, it creates this kind of a whole other dialogue that I would have never even considered. And I think that kind of goes back to that idea of that magical transference of objects from real life to object on page is that Mm -hmm. it's an invitation for someone to see it and say, okay, someone chose to take the time to draw this pair of shoes, you know, these old beaten up vans, right? And all of a sudden they go from a pair of old beaten up low top vans which you might see a thousand times a day in California to something that is an invitation to interact with in a Mm. creative way I guess we're just talking about shoes and vans we could talk Mm. specifically maybe about that series that you did that was portraits of your shoes yeah and I wonder if you could just yeah sort of speak to that and what narratives you were getting at and why your own 
choose as a way to get there? <laughs> so I guess like going like further back, like starting out in community college and I guess like the beginning of undergrad, I was making a lot of just traditional self-portraits. You know, it's a it's a subject that most artists tend to fall back on when in doubt, draw yourself <laughs> kind of always available subject matter. But in critiques, I started getting a lot of questions like, why should I look at your portrait? Why should I care? Ah, rude. What is, yeah. <laughs> what, is, what, is it, what is it saying besides just, you know, showing the viewer what you look like? So I was constantly told to, to dig deeper. And it was actually Hugh Merrill at Kansas City Art Institute that really sort of got me thinking about what counts as a self-portrait. He said um, something along the lines of, like, it can be the contents of your sock drawer, and it's Mm. still a self-portrait. And that really stuck with me, and it's something I've carried ever since, and I pass on to my students when we talk about self-portraits. So with that, I kind of, like, began exploring identity looks or features, like hair or something. And eventually came back to the idea of objects or things you see in everyday life as a self-portrait. Well, this led to my BFA thesis, uh, which was a bunch of, there's 50 tiny line etchings of everyday snippets of my day Mm. um, that I called tiny happenings. And which was funny because I had them displayed in a cafe and a cafe owner would tell me the different stories that customers would interpret from my prints. Like some would read them like a, a comic or a, a story almost. And some would pinpoint clues about my like quiet demeanor, labeled me as a lonely person. Oh. And it was extremely it was extremely interesting. And the fact that it that it was, you know, vulnerability uh, that caused this was something I also wanted to explore. So eventually in grad school, I created the the shoe collection series. And this is actually uh, when I first began incorporating text into my work. Yeah. They actually started out as a bunch of watercolor studies. And then Michael Barnes saw them and said, make them into big lithographs. So Mm. I had to. That sounds like some (laughs) good... Michael Barnes-esque advice. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So with that series, I... It was really interesting that I had people still link themselves to my own pairs of shoes and the the commentary I added to them. Some had similar viewpoints on, you know, how uncomfortable a pair was or the pain of finally throwing away a beloved pair. So the things that, like, some take for granted were c- connecting people and, and their stories, and I think that was my favorite thing about that series, but also, you know, in in general, I think uh, it's my favorite thing about, you know, art making and storytelling. Yeah. So the shoes were just another (laughs) self-portrait. Yeah. Well, and I I love what you're saying there about how, you know, you're making these intimate, if non-traditional portraits of yourself and your experience. And I think that sort of the life of people who are introverted, the life of introverts, it, you know, I, I do think when when you can get kind of in your own head, the objects around you and the objects that you have kind of intimate or daily physical relationships with do get kind of imbued with almost an aura about them. And you, you develop these 
rich emotional world around, oh, well, this pair of shoes or that coffee mug or um, that brush for my makeup. Like, that's the good one. That's the one I don't like. And I don't know, maybe everyone does that. But <laughs> I, I've always thought that there was something kind of introverted about that because you you have this really rich inner life and sometimes particularly if you're spending a lot of time alone by choice as an introvert the objects that you interact with can kind of pick up maybe some of the energy that other people put on humans like other humans I don't know yeah yeah I get that and I and I think you know, the things that you, you say about your shoes and your shoe portraits about, like, there's something, there's one line that was like, if I had to be mad at one pair of shoes, it'd be these shoes or something <laughs> like that. And, um, yeah. You know, and just the, the, the way like, oh, this is the pair of shoes that fall off my feet when I walk fast. These are the ones that <laughs> I don't know why I own them, um, but I, I don't get rid of them. And, and I think that, that that speaks to a lot of different people's inner worlds and the relationships that, yeah, they they have with what they interact with, which is, yeah, really a really interesting thing to to take on doing a portrait of. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in the case of the, like the collection of shoes, adding the words to them, it really invites a narrative around them. It, it really sort of mm. changes the way that people see the image and I think that always happens when you add text to images because people see images as ambiguous as kind of an open-ended question and I think text as didactic and almost a closed-ended question that's the the image might say what is what what am I where the text says this is what this is and Mm -hmm. yet the way that you've used text you've managed to create it as a extension of that invitation by just telling a little snippet about your relationship with it. Is that something that you, you sort of thought of consciously when you went into it? Or how did you go about thinking of how you paired these words and images? Um, I think because that was the, the series that I really began using text and it just kind of just happened naturally to link them together. I've always kind of felt that like my work is like a a diary entry Mm. (laughs) almost. Um, It goes back to me, you know, wanting to record and document what goes on in my days. Um, I tend to work in series that kind of involve one singular idea, like the shoes are kind of reflecting of like a, what I call a season of my life, I guess. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, In most cases, like these series have evolved from you know a single thought or a phrase um i think people will look at the image first um and then the word second the text can of course like you said inform the image or also change it completely my process typically typically starts with like text as a sort of prompt most of my sketchbooks are filled with words or Mm. phrases instead of instead of images um Sometimes the words will produce an image without text. Sometimes the text is shown alongside the image. Um, it's always changing. I think in the case of the shoes, I would just look at them and like whatever <laughs> pops into my head. 
yeah, we, we all have, you know, something about, you know, the objects we, we own. I think um, it's making me remember um, growing up, my sister and I had like the spoon that we had to use like and oh, fought yeah. over. There's, yeah. There's like one one good spoon. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. But you know, yeah, I I do like the idea of focusing on that and I think the image adds something to that. But I also I also I also feel like if you were to remove the words, I think the images could stand alone in some cases. Mm-hmm. Maybe not necessarily the shoes because then it would just be a giant <sighs> lithograph of vans which is i guess could pose some some questions it this theme of of wanting to document so you can remember definitely seems to come up again for you you know both in childhood and it sounds like through today Mm -hmm. where do you think that impulse comes from for you i i don't know really Mm. (laughs) um it's just something something that i've already or always done I think more recently it's kind of like I've thought of it as giving thoughts a place to go and rest um rather than you know swirling around in my head all the time so it's like they can live in the series of prints I love that idea giving giving thoughts a place to go and rest is Mm -hmm. such an accurate way to describe that. It's interesting because I I think that I had the times in my life when I've had more anxiety and been dealing with, you know, pretty, pretty serious anxiety. Those seem to be the thoughts when I, the the times when I personally feel like things are slipping away and that I need to somehow Mm -hmm. hold on to them. And then as, you know, I think as I got older, as I, as I learned personally, just how to deal with anxiety better, deal with feelings better. That went away a little bit for me. And so that's an interesting way to kind of think about it is that as almost as a way to deal with maybe perhaps even anxious thoughts, because when you say that kind of like swirling Mm -hmm. thoughts, like I, I, I definitely know those about anxiety. It's just like, that's like next time you go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, you're going to fall down those stairs just so you know. And then you're like, I don't need to hear this right now, brain. And they're like, no, you're definitely going to just think of it. Think about, think about how much it's going to hurt. Stop it. I don't need this. You know, like, like, so like anxious thoughts, which I know all too well to almost let them live out their life in another place. You know, like you can't, you can't humanely kill them. So you just have to like put them out to pasture in an yeah. image or a phrase or something like that is uh, is a really wonderful idea. I, I mean, we all have to try that. Maybe I'll have to draw us because yeah. I, I can't draw. So I just draw like a stick figure portrait of me falling down the stairs in my house. Like, <laughs> I think that counts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just trying to trying to get it out there. Yeah. I'd also like to talk about your series on allegory, which is really beautiful and again your your incredible draftsmanship comes up in this but also the way you render animals in that is extremely beautiful as well and so can you just sort of talk to the series where it came from and maybe why that braid keeps popping up over and over again in it yeah so allegory was 
my MFA thesis. Okay. It was a response to a really horrible time in my life. I was, you know, barely adjusting to grad school, which is a stress in itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I was 2,000 miles away from home. Uh, I was in an extremely toxic relationship, and I had gotten word that my uncle was missing and mm. presumed to be murdered back home. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was I was helpless. I was stressed out, um, unable to be there for my family, just utterly destroyed and alone. And um, the images from that series allowed me to process everything that was going on. From that came a lot of fond memories from, you know, my past, like my sister and I collecting butterflies from our grandparents, Len Tannabush, or um, the aviary in my uncle's backyard, um, and how magical my uncle's house used to used to feel, but was now um, kind of felt tainted. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there were a lot of conflicting emotions. So within that series, there were a lot of what I call like identifiers or icons that symbolize kind of like a certain time, person or place. Sometimes they, you know, be represented by animals. One of the icons that kind of came up and sort of flipped in throughout the series was the braid. I used to have extremely long hair that was often braided to keep it tame because my hair is crazy curly. Mm-hmm. I labeled the braid as representing my past because it was a piece of who I was in my youth. So throughout the series, you'll see the braid or or hair incorporated in many of the images, kind of like a snake or being ripped apart by birds and so mm-hmm. on. It's even printed transparently in the borders of most of the prints. So the the braid is like a yet another way of uh, linking an object to myself. It acts as like another self portrait in a way. I feel it's like easier for me to assign an object to something uh, rather than exhaustively explaining in depth what you know my past means to me. So you know a little symbol. So that that series felt like both like an extremely cleansing experience but also just like a huge gut punch Mm, (laughs) Um, mm -hmm. it took a lot out of me but I also feel like it was much needed the alternative would have been you know like a deep depression Mm -hmm. the fact that I was happened to be in grad school and this is going on but I was also kind of expected to be self-driven and create a body of work was what drove me to create these these images and that in the end I think really did save me it ended up being therapy for me yeah that sounds like it for sure because I I mean I know that and it's something that people I don't know don't talk about or at least don't talk about as much as I'd prefer them to how Mm. traumatic grad school can be in and of itself (laughs) yeah the fact that you were doing that with this you know, like one of the worst things that can happen to a family happening mm-hmm. with you. I, I cannot imagine what that combination must have been like, because I know plenty of people who just 
grad school on its own, you know, almost had them have a whole breakdown. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because it's, it is such a huge shift from the experience of undergrad. You're, you're, if you go to grad school, it's probably because you're used to getting accolades as an undergrad, you know, being a bright student and all of a sudden you're thrown in some place where there's no rule book, but everything you do is wrong. I think is a lot of people's yeah. experience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm, thank you for, for being so <laughs> honest about that, that series. Cause yeah. it's, um, it's a beautiful series and knowing the, the story behind it, it's, it just gives it more significance for sure. Yeah. I, I think that, that that should be something that people talk more openly about is, is the, is grad school trauma or, you know, when you have the, um, <laughs> like the, the booths or not the booths, the, the, the tables at SGCI for different grad schools, there should be like, like a, like a disclaimer sticker or like a, like, you know, like a warning <laughs> label that they put on like cigarettes or like alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> it's like may cause complete emotional breakdown. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I actually, when I was in graduate school, I met a woman in a writing class, uh, like an extracurricular writing class, because of course, you know, you get dropped into grad school and all of a sudden you're supposed to write really well, even though no one's ever hold, yeah. held you to the standard of writing well before. And so, you know, <laughs> you just, just cry until someone teaches you how to write. And so I was in this writing class and I met this woman there who's also in a, grad, a graduate program in education. And she was actually writing her PhD about kind of the trauma of graduate school. And I was like, how are you doing that in graduate school though? You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and she was just like, she was like, yeah, it's hard to, <laughs> to kind of <laughs> test. It's like, you know, write, you know, go through something that you're actually studying as well. So I remember talking to my, my dad about it and he was just like, I think they just want to make it hurt because somebody made it hurt for them when they were in grad school, and they think that's part of the process, but I, I don't know. Yeah. Well, in the time that we have left, I would yeah. love to make sure to talk about dogs, <laughs> because <laughs> they are definitely a theme in your work. You do amazing pet portraits for people, and I guess maybe, I don't even know if I have a fully formed question other than like, aren't dogs great? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's only one answer and it's yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um and so you you have one or two dogs yourself? I have two. Okay. And do they show up in your work? Do you use them as muses? A a lot, yeah. <laughs> Cuz they're always there. Yeah. Um <laughs> it's hard to ignore them. It's part of the reason why they're so great is that, yeah, they're, they're always there. <laughs> they're always there. Yeah. <laughs> and so maybe, yeah, if we can, to, to form it into a, you know, an actual sort of cohesive question, it might be something like, you know, this idea of, of, of drawing pet portraits, do you consider that sort of a side hustle? You know, something that's like <laughs> the working artist or is it, something that you really think is the quote-unquote sort of like fine art practice of of what you do? I mean, I think it started out as kind of like a, a side hustle. But actually, I, because I, I bought a house 
and I adopted these two dogs and I just wanted a portrait of them for my living room. (laughs) But like, you know, the power of social media is is real. Um, I I posted them and got a lot of interest in them and began offering commissions. And I think like I spend a lot of time on them. (laughs) Yeah. And thought and care and because it's just, I love drawing animal or I love animals. I love dogs. I love drawing texture and detail and kind of getting lost in the like repetitive marks, building up the fur texture and everything. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like a happy marriage that people just seem to enjoy. But yeah, I still like, I don't do it as much as I would like to just because, you know, teaching schedule and everything, yeah. but I'm always available usually. Yeah. I was going <laughs> to say, if you would like to plug, Jessica Robles uh, pet portraits you know this is this is the time because (laughs) yeah it's it's super easy you just pay me and (laughs) I'll try your your animal Uh, I do do cats as well I I did my parents bird recently Um, yeah so just not just limited to dogs definitely and then so do you do you work from a single photo usually Usually I'll have people, you know, email me multiple photos um, as best as, you know, you can, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, preferably in the in the pose you want. And um, most of the times it's, you know, old family pets or something. Yeah. So some of, you know, like those pixelated photos, which surprisingly, I think I can like generalize it <laughs> best I can. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like a bit more of a challenge for me um which I like yeah <laughs> um, but also like owning dogs if I get stuck on a, like a fur pattern or something I'll just look at my dog let's <laughs> just be like come here <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> like, look, that fur going around your eye okay yeah but uh... it, it's a lot of fun I I enjoy you know the process of like watching them kind of come to life I always say like my favorite part is when I get to the eyes and they just kind of like twinkle. <laughs> yeah, twinkle yeah. dog eyes. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. That, that you should say people will often be like the old family pet because mm-hmm. um, I have a extremely beloved dog who passed away about three years ago, a little over three years ago now. And she's absolutely, I'd be interested in getting a portrait of her done because yeah. it's, you know, you you got you have all these these photos and you know because I you know I had her in the in the age of smartphones so uh, mm-hmm. you know my entire phone was photos of her at one point and but it's yeah it's, there's something about having a portrait you know having that that love and care from and talents of an artist moved into like like taking taking this sort of abstract concept of your dog and solidifying it into a portrait it's just just something that seems sort of formal and I don't know more tangible more long-lasting in the sense that Mm -hmm. it's it's a portrait it's like you know you go to see portraits of kings and queens and it's uh (laughs) yeah it has a very different emotional weight than even a printout of a digital photograph very, very different emotional weight. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll send you send you a DM with some photos and get a quote when it's all yeah. over. Because it's, uh, uh, 
yeah, they're having an artist capture your beloved uh, is a long, long, long tradition. <laughs> yeah, and uh, <laughs> and I one I think I could I could stand to be a part of for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'd love to. That would be great. It would be great. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time, Jessica, and for being so open about your work and your stories and. Before we say goodbye for the my morning, your evening, um, would you please tell people where they can find you, follow your work, see your work, commission a portrait of their beloved cat? <laughs> where can they do all this? Yeah, so I, I have a website. It's jessicarobles.com. Um, on there, it's not completely up to date but I'm working on it <laughs> but it yep. also has like a little mini mini store on there too but um and then also I'm on Instagram um Jessica Robles Art find me you can send me a, a DM if you're interested in anything any commissions or just want to say hi excellent yeah. well I will put links to all of that in the show notes and um yes thank you again I'm excited to to share our talk with everyone yeah thank you so much well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Judy Hecker. Judy is the director of the International Print Center New York, otherwise lovingly known as IPCNY. We talk about the incredible 21 history of this institution, as well as the amazing, and I mean amazing, resources that it offers. You do not want to miss this one. Judy was a delight. It's incredible to learn about these places all around the world, and I can't wait to share it with you. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.